Lord, we thank you for mothers. We thank you for the life that comes through them. We thank you, Lord. Mother knows that life can often be painful and that mothering is not easy work. And yet your love, which beats in their hearts, for we, their children, for we, the, the husbands and fathers and brothers who are grateful for these mothers, we see your love in them. Now we ask that your love would shine to them, that all of your resource and grace would be upon them today, that family celebrations would be graced and blessed. And Lord, for any who are suffering any kind of pain because of distance from their children or distance from their mothers, even if that is distance that extends beyond this lifetime, those that are mourning mothers that are in heaven, we pray that your grace, your comfort, your peace would be with them today, Lord, and that your blessing would be upon them every day as they continue to mother, as they continue to love, as they continue to grow in you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Happy mothers. We love you, mothers. Well, we had a wonderful gathering here yesterday with mothers and sisters and daughters and ladies. And I, and I also want to say thanks to the brothers who helped bring that to pass as well. Um, really such a wonderful event, uh, our ladies' luncheon yesterday, which was especially uh, scheduled to correspond to Mother's Day weekend. We had a powerful teaching from Pastor Maureen Broderson, who's been in this pulpit before. And um, I tell you, it blessed me. Uh, I was reminded of the power of the Holy Spirit and of how when we hear from the Holy Spirit, we receive the kinds of blessings that only God can give. And so today, as we continue in our series on people of patience, we are going to open the word and open to the spirit. Because whenever you open the scriptures, you and I want to open not only our ears to hear what it is that God is saying, but also our hearts to receive what it is that God is giving, to lay hold of what it is that God is instructing us in. This spring series that we are undertaking together in the year of patience is leading us to look at a variety of people in the scriptures who demonstrate that extraordinary quality of faith and perseverance and persistence and trust that we call patience. Last week, we looked at Job, a man whose story unfolds at a time very long ago. The book itself doesn't specify for a certainty, but he is probably of that era of the patriarchs and matriarchs, I suppose we could say this Mother's Day. In other words, probably living in an era similar to Abraham and Sarah. Now, maybe you wonder, exactly when did they live? And you know what? We like to teach stuff like that in preschool and ministry. So if you're ever wanting to get more context for this wonderful text of God's scripture, join us in PSUM. We don't have class today. We want you to be with your mom. Or if you're a mom, we want you to relax. But next week, I'll be back in PSOM. And one of the things we do talk about is when were particular books written and what era do their stories take place in? Because sometimes those are not necessarily the same. We don't know exactly when Abraham and Sarah lived, but it's probably around 2,000 years B.C., before Jesus. In other words, they were about the same period before Jesus as you and I are living after him. And what we mean by before and after is the incarnation. Jesus is eternal, but he had a human life here on earth, as you well know. And so last week, 
we were in that era some 2,000 years perhaps before Jesus, maybe. Now, I've told you last week that I was going to try and move through these in roughly chronological order, but there'd be some changes to that. And indeed there are, because um, this is in fact the next in line in the sense of Esther's story, which is what we will be looking at today, comes much later than Job. But next week we're going to talk about Joseph. And Joseph comes before Esther. But as I mentioned, I figured it might be worthy to look at a lovely lady of patience on Mother's Day. Would you agree with that? And in fact, Job and Esther are right next to each other in the scriptures. In fact, Esther comes just before Job. So we're going back one book in the Bible, but we're going forward in time, about a millennium and a half, more than 1,500 years later. Esther lives in a time in which the kingdom of Israel, which didn't even yet exist in the days of Abraham, because it would be born out of his family line, has already come into existence under the leadership of kings like Saul and David around 1000 BC and has divided. It fractured because there were disagreements between families and tribes and there was disobedience in the land and it fractured into a northern kingdom known as Israel, although both used to be Israel, or sometimes referred to as Samaria for its capital, and a southern kingdom, Judah. It is, in fact, from the name of Judah and the Judahites that live there that our terminology for the Jewish people and the Jewish faith has been derived. It's derived from Judah, which means praise. Now, what happened was that both of those kingdoms that split apart in a kind of civil war had their own history side by side for a long time. But ultimately, other empires around Israel came to dominate them. And the word of the Lord makes it clear why that happened. It happened because of their disobedience. Because they, like we, were people who disobeyed. And they, like we, were people who needed God's grace. And they, like we, were people who received the invitation of God's grace. But just like we have a choice to make when God makes that invitation, so did they. And very often, unfortunately, these people turned away from the Lord. And so what the Lord said is, the nations around you will come to dominate you. We recognize that. For those of you that are regularly part of PCF, you recognize that as the judges cycle that we talked about last year in that series. Well, it goes on, and people have problems because of their disobedience. The kingdom in the north falls to the mighty Assyrian Empire. Only Judah remains, and it remains for about a century and a half, roughly, after that northern kingdom has fallen. But ultimately, even Judah, which had remained the, the repository, if you will, of, of God's most precious promises. They had maintained the scriptures and their devotion to it in a way that the northern kingdom hadn't. They maintained the line of David and the Davidic dynasty on the throne of Jerusalem. They maintained the temple and temple worship with the Levitical priests, the way that God had taught them to do through Moses. They had maintained those things, and yet, ever encroaching in their lives was an increasing disregard for God's word, an increasing disregard for God's ways. And so ultimately, there was an increasing subjective uh, subjection to the enemies of God in the world around them. Now, by the way, while their fortunes were shifting over time, 
so were the nations around them. Because that's the way of life. That's the way of the world, isn't, isn't it? The, there are superpowers that rise and superpowers that fall. At one point, the Assyrian Empire was one of the most dominant empires on the face of the world. But later, its star, which had risen so high, would start to fall. And another empire would take its place, the Babylonian Empire. And so, in the days of Esther, this has already occurred. Judah, the southern kingdom, has fallen to the Babylonian conquest and a Babylonian exile has taken place in 586 B.C., about 586 years, roughly, before the birth of Jesus. Esther comes several generations even after that. Why mention it? Because it's important to understand why we find Esther where we do. Why, in fact, Esther is even called Esther, because her name in Hebrew is Hadassah, or Hadassah is maybe a little better pronunciation of it. Why does she have a Persian name? Why is she living in the city of Susa, which is not in Israel, which is in the Persian Empire, a capital at that time? Well, she is because Babylon had conquered the southern kingdom and had taken the Judahites, the Jewish people of that nation, into Babylon. Now, that lasted for about 70 years, and then there was a decree by a leader named Cyrus who allowed the Judahites to return. And so there was a reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem, a rebuilding of the walls and the temple. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you can find out more about that. But not everybody came back. And the Babylonian Empire continued to shift. Whereas once a people called the Chaldeans were in charge, later there were a people known as Persians. And even today, Persia exists. We, it sounds very musical suddenly. Thank you for the accompaniment. Someone out there wants to celebrate uh, modern-day Persia. Well, very well. It is called Iran, okay? And this is the contemporary counterpart to that region and that culture. The Persians became dominant in the Babylonian Empire, and Persian leader is actually the king that we will meet in this story of Esther. So there are Jewish people living throughout the ancient Persian Babylonian Empire in the days of Esther. They are living in the presence of their enemies, if you will. Why are they enemies? Because remember the very exclusive nature of the faith that God had given his people. They were to be people of the book, not to bow to other gods or to other kings who called themselves gods, as was common in the ancient world. And maybe there are world leaders today who think that they are gods and expect people to bow down to them. Don't do it. It is one thing to respect a leader. It is another thing to recognize God. And these Jewish people, even in the empire where they lived, would not forsake their faith in God if indeed they were going to be people of faith. That's the way Esther wanted to live her life, as a person of faith, living in a culture that did not respect her faith and that constantly pushed and pressed her and others like her to shift over to the way the rest of the world thought. Now I hope you begin to see why the story of Esther is important to you and I, not just because we have regard for this story because it is in the scriptures, but because it also actively applies today to our life. 
The story of Esther is the story of what it means to live for the Lord in the midst of a world that is at odds with the word of God and the ways of God. And you know, one thing that it requires is patience. Patient faith and trust in God. And one thing that it entails is that the more you trust in God and the more vocal you are about that trust, the more likely it is that you're going to face challenge and opposition. Face it, face it with patience. Face it with trust. Face your enemies, if you will, in the love of Christ and with the kind of patience that we see in Esther. Now, the book of Esther has a wonderful structure to it. In fact, it's so well structured that some have questioned, not only due to its structure, but also due to the fact that its history is not easily uh, uh, evidenced for us. In other words, the story that it tells is a story that we know largely only because of the book of Esther in the Bible. Some have questioned if this is, in fact, a piece of fiction. And when we say that, it's possible for us to consider that without doing any damage to our trust in the word of God because Esther is not one of those books that necessarily demands to be read as a piece of history. And even if it is historical, in other words, even if there is an actual series of events that really happened that are being depicted in the book of Esther, it's possible that those, those events have been dramatized. You know when you watch a movie and it says, based on a true story? Why does it not simply say, this is a true story? Well, because it's been dramatized. Certain liberties have been taken with it. It's possible that the book of Esther, which was written by a human author or authors that we don't know, it doesn't tell us the author, there's no strong tradition, we know that the Holy Spirit inspired it, but it's possible that it is provided as a kind of fable for us, a lesson to be taught. It is also possible that it is true and historical fact, and it may be somewhere in between. What's most important for you and I to recognize is God has provided us this story to teach us about how to live in the context that we see Esther living in, a real context that many people have lived in and that in a real way you and I are living in today. Now, I mentioned this structure. It kind of sandwiches a moment of truth. The book opens with three chapters that describe to us lots of preparations, and in this structure, you often will see a storyline about those who are enemies of God or at the very least, friends of the world. In other words, totally given over to a worldly way of thinking. And then there's a line of people in the story who are notable for their faith and are marked out as belonging to God. And both of these two groups often engage in similar things. For instance, in the days of preparation where the story begins, we meet a king. In Greek, his name is Xerxes. He's also called uh, Ahasuerus in the script, in the text, who is very given over to partying. He loves feasts. He likes to celebrate and to drink. In fact, the book seems to indicate he gets drunk. He and his pals get so drunk that they act inappropriately. I'm sure no one here can relate to that, but our world does have such things happening in it. Later on, there will be 
uh, feasts that are given by Esther herself. And these feasts are not occasion for drunkenness, but they are occasion where God will turn the tables of the feast. And those who seem to be in power are going to be revealed as being in trouble, and those who seem to be in trouble are going to be revealed as having been empowered by God's favor. So there's this kind of parallel structure. Pay attention to that as we look at the story. But in the center of the story, there's a moment of truth. So days of preparation, where the king is looking for a new queen, we'll find out why in just a moment, where there are women being prepared to be examined to see if they will be eligible to be that queen, where the woman who ultimately becomes that queen has to be prepared by God. And rather than feasting, she will fast. That's another aspect of the structure. Sometimes what we see is the antithesis. The king was given over to feasting and drunkenness. Esther and her friends and her people will give themselves over to fasting in order to seek the Lord for the patience, for the trust, for the courage that will be called for. And then there's a moment of truth where Esther has to make a decision and take a risk. And when she does, the whole story hangs in the balance. Now, you're probably not surprised that God comes through. And when he does, the story concludes with chapters describing days of celebration. But even in the celebration, there's an antithesis. The celebration is of life, but it involves death. And it involves a kind of violence that you and I might find troubling. But if we're reading the story properly and if we're hearing from the Lord, there's wisdom for us in realizing that even those deaths are a part of God's affirmation of life. How can that be? We'll get to that when we get to that part of the story. Let's hear the story of Esther. A lot of times a sermon begins with the story and moves into the sermon. Today, it is the story. <laughs> the sermon is the story, and the story is of Esther. And it is of the people of God, these Jewish people, living during this era following the Babylonian exile when these people in the Persian Empire are being ruled by this king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, probably, who is displeased with his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, why is he displeased with her? During a time of uh, feasting, the king has his feasts with his guys, the king's men, and the queen has her feasts. She is feasting with her ladies-in-waiting and other women of the court. And at some point during this feast, after the king and his buddies have had a lot to drink, they call for Queen Vashti. Unexpected, unbidden until now, the king commands, bring her here, tell her to wear her crown. Some Jewish commentators on this in ancient times suggest that when the king says, tell her to wear her crown, it is not simply saying, add the crown to what she's wearing, but let her wear the crown and nothing else. This is an interpretation. It is not necessarily what was occurring, but it is one thought as to why wouldn't she come? Maybe she was offended. Maybe she was refusing to be objectified this way. Even if he wasn't asking her to come and wear her crown and nothing else for he and his friends to ogle, maybe simply by demanding her presence in such a way at such an improper time when she is actually hostess to her own ritual feast, the queen is offended by the king's command. In any case, it is the law that she is to come, but she refuses to come. 
And in doing so, she falls into disfavor with the king. He determines to set her aside. He will never see her again. She will live in seclusion and she will live in ignominy and dishonor, but she will live. But he will find a new queen. And so he determines to search. He initiates an empire-wide search. Now, the Persian Empire was vast at this time, not only accounting for all of the area that the Babylonians had achieved under the Chaldeans, but also the areas of the Persians that they themselves had already conquered and much of the ancient Middle East. So it's a huge empire. And women are called from all the various regions. He's looking for a beautiful woman, honorable woman. And what he means by that is, when I call, you come. Now, you may not find that to be such an honorable kind of guy. And in fact, the story does not depict this queen or virtually anyone in it as being of pure moral quality. Yes, the story does not depict even Mordechai, who we're going to meet in just a moment, and his niece, Esther, as being of pure moral quality. They are people of faith, but their character seems to be somewhat degraded by the nature of the character of the society around them. There is something very unique about the book of Esther, so unique that it is true of Esther, this book, and not of any other book in the Bible. And that is, though the king's name is mentioned over and over again, and even Esther is given multiple names, God is never named in the book at all. God is never mentioned. God is not specifically and explicitly mentioned in the text. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it, for a book of the Bible and especially a book of the Old Testament. Every other book of the Old Testament goes to such great efforts to put God at the center. And when you think about, for instance, our study of the book of Judges, we saw how when people replaced God at the center of their thinking, with other idols or with other kings, that's when they got into trouble. So why would the Holy Spirit inspire a book that does not mention God? Actually, the lack of mention of God is glaring. Most interpreters would suggest that it's intentional, that the book goes out of its way to put God in the background, so to speak, but in the background in a powerful way. You know how on your computer or other digital devices, things can be going on in the background that is exactly what's driving everything in the front? On a website, there's all kinds of mechanisms that are occurring in the back side of things that you don't see. But that's what makes that website available and active and responsive. So God is not named in the book. And in a way, this is probably a sign to us that God is not being widely acknowledged in this empire. God is not being widely acknowledged in this world. It's possible to go out there and live in the world that you and I are living in and hear people who never talk about God. He's never part of their thinking. But let me ask you something. Is God not involved in their stories? God rules over all. But we can forget God. The book of Esther reminds us, even when people forget God, God doesn't forget people. Amen. And even when people ignore and neglect God, God does not ignore and neglect people. 
or if he chooses to turn away, he says so. He does so for a reason. So don't look at the individuals in the book of Esther as being necessarily moral guidelines to you. Look instead at the entire story and see that God is the hero of the story and he doesn't even need to be named. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspiring this story. Here is a king who has to be named everywhere that he goes, and he has to be celebrated and feted, even though his whole life is given over to dissipation. All he wants to do is party. All he wants to do is give commands and make people do what he wants them to do. But he's got no real integrity. He's got no real humility. He's got no real wisdom. He's a bit of a fool. And the other people in the story who want to puff themselves up and make themselves grand, end up making fools of themselves. But here is God telling the story, and God says, I don't need to say my name at all because I don't have to make a big show of who I am. I am who I am, and I know what I'm up to. Well, what the king is up to is finding a lovely young woman who will be his bride. And so he submits these women to all kinds of beauty treatments and health treatments and training They are prepared to be reviewed. And ultimately, the one that he selects is Hadassah. The name means myrtle tree. The myrtle tree is a figure in the scriptures of God's goodness and grace bringing forth fruitfulness and beauty out of a living thing. It is a tree that is lovely to look at, fruitful, and often situated by waterways. It is a tree like we read about in Psalm 1, rooted and planted by the waters and flourished by the Lord. Esther, her Persian name, means star. And she is a star in the king's eyes. But what the king doesn't know is that she is Jewish. He knows nothing of her ethnic origin. He doesn't realize that her very faith will put her at odds with his kind of decrees. And this is ironic. There's a lot of irony and even humor in the story because the king is looking for a woman who will obey only him and he has chosen a woman who is of a faith that says obey God above all else. That means there's trouble coming because if he was unhappy with Vashti when she didn't obey him, what will he do to Esther if she must choose whether to obey God or the king. Now Esther has been raised in the ways of God and does know the scriptures and the things of her own faith and ethnicity because she's been raised by her older cousin. We often refer to him as an uncle, but I think uh, this community understands well that sometimes such names and terminology can be utilized in a loose way to refer to an older figure who has a familial role of responsibility and stewardship in a life. So he's an older cousin, but he's more like a Tito to her. He is a Benjamite. In fact, in the backstory of Mordecai, we get most of the references to Jewishness in the story and to the Hebraic history here. He is apparently a descendant of officials in the former royal court of Jeconiah. In other words, one of the kings of Judah back in the time before the fall of Judah. And so he is descended from a line of of Jewish courtiers, and he has uh, been, his family has been established in a similar kind of role in the exile in the court uh, of the Babylonian rulers, first under Nebuchadnezzar and now under the Persian rulers 
that have come to dominate. So Mordecai is a counselor, an advisor to the king, a wise man. And he has particularly distinguished himself in the favors of the king because he happened in his attentiveness and in his genuine concern and care for the man and the government that he served to overhear that there were people in close proximity to the king, members of the court, who were planning to kill the king and try and take over the throne. And so Mordecai reports them, and their plot is foiled, and the king is grateful, and it's recorded in the records, the annals of the king. Remember that. Say, recorded by the king. It's recorded by the king, and that's going to be important later. However, with all this favor from the king, Mordecai also faces a lot of disfavor from the rest of the court. He is disliked and distrusted by many and is primarily a reflection of the kind of prejudice of the other people in that society who look at him as one of these strange people given over to this strange religion with this very demanding God whom they think is better than everyone else. And so they look down on him. Maybe you feel that way in your workplace. Are there people who look at you and go, oh, this is one of these Bible-believing Christians. They talk about Jesus like, like they know him. They talk about God like they hear from him. And they dislike you precisely because you are open, not obnoxious, but open about having a relationship with God. And you would say, yeah, I, I do know Jesus, and I love him, and he's alive. And yes, I do believe that you can hear from God. God wants us to hear from him. And yes, I do read the Bible and believe it. And no, that doesn't make me stupid. In fact, it gives me a lot of wisdom that I could never have otherwise. And I'd love to be able to share that with you. And there are people that turn against you simply because of that. That's the kind of fact that Mordecai faces. And yet, Mordecai stays true to his faith. And this brings him into the crosshairs, particularly of Haman, or Haman, the Agagite. So he also is one of these people that is from a different region and brought into the empire and trying to rise high. In fact, he's a very high official. In the story, he comes across as essentially the right-hand man of the king, kind of a prime minister, if you will. And he is really in the king's good graces, and he really dislikes Mordecai, maybe especially because he sees that if there's anyone who's going to be a contender against him for the best position next to the king, it's Mordecai. And so Haman sets his sights on Mordecai. There is something that Mordecai does, or rather, I guess it's better to say he doesn't do, that particularly offends Uh, Haman gets under his skin. Virtually everyone else in the government below the king bows down in worship and honor to Haman. This prime minister is supposed to receive a kind of honor that is religious in nature. He expects people to bow down before him as they would unto a god, and indeed most people do, but Mordecai will not. There you see him sitting off to the side. And it's not because... He has a particular vendetta against Haman. It's because he has a particular commitment to God and to God's word that says, do not worship a person as if they were God. But when Haman sees this resistance of Mordecai and recognizes that it's because of his faith, he then devises a plot, and it's not just against Mordecai. It's against all people like Mordecai, all the people of God, all the Jewish people throughout the vast 
Persian Empire. Haman has the power and the ear of the king to actually create a plot that could bring them to an end. And that is what he determines in his heart to do. Recognize in this the similarity to other stories that come in the scriptures. For instance, the disposition of the heart of Pharaoh in the days of Moses when Pharaoh determined, I want to kill the children of Israel. It is always a reflection of a demonic impulse to try and wipe out people of faith and do not think that the devil has stopped. Do you belong to God? Are you a follower of his? Will you bow to God and to no one else? Then let me assure you, the devil has designs to kill you. Will that make you turn from God? It shouldn't, for at least two reasons. One, the devil has designs to kill you anyway. Don't think that by following him, you can be any friend of his. The devil has no friends. The devil can't be a friend. He comes only to steal, kill, lie, destroy. But secondly, God has already said, If you will be with me, I am for you. And if I am for you, no one can be against you. And even if you lose your life, you will not lose me. And since God is the source of life, even a life that dies can be raised again if it is in God. But if your life is not in God, then no matter how long you live, you are already dead. The book of Esther therefore presents an early and classic tale of anti-Semitism. That is opposition to the Jewish people for no other reason than the fact that they are Jewish. But there is a reason other than that, and that is that that anti-Semitic impulse is an engine that is stoked by the enemy, by the devil, by Satan, the adversary of God's people. Sadly, it's something that shows up again and again in history. Haman intends to establish an empire-wide day for exterminating all the Jewish people, all people of Jewish descent throughout the vast Persian empire. And in order to determine the day, he decides to roll the dice. What day should it be? Let's roll the dice and see. It gives you some sense of the utter lack of guidance in the lives of these people. Totally given over to destruction, but not even able to determine when. A kind of haphazardness a kind of immorality in it. Now, in the Persian language at the time, the reference to dice is to Pur. And this is where the Jewish holiday of Purim gets its name because the dice were rolled to determine a day when the people of God would all be killed. And that's the plan. Meanwhile, Mordecai realizes that this plan is taking shape and he also realizes that God is at work with a plan of his own. He believes that God's divine providence has placed Esther in a position to be a potential intercessor and savior for her people. Now you might say, now wait a minute, Court. You said that God isn't mentioned in the book at all. So how can you be saying that Mordecai believes this about God? Well, you've got to be able to read between the lines. You've got to be able to understand what it is that Mordecai is saying when he speaks to Esther the words so famously remembered by so many of us about why she has arrived at the place that she has. 
In other words, Mordecai doesn't reference the name of God, but Mordecai is clearly being informed by the wisdom and spirit of God. But there is a problem with this plan, which is that it puts Esther in a position in which she has to risk her life because she is not of royal lineage. She has been hand-selected from the populace. So she does not have going for her the kinds of things that Queen Vashti probably had going for her because Vashti may very well have been a descendant of the prior Chaldean Empire. And even though her people were no longer in primary rulership, there were still the political exigencies that mean that her life is protected. But if Esther goes in when the king does not call her, an antithesis, by the way, of Vashti refusing to go in when the king did call her, Esther risks not only banishment, but execution. On the other hand, see the parallel. Esther risks execution if she acts, but if she does nothing, her entire people group faces genocide. Again, it's similar to what I just said about thinking, well, if if going with God means the enemy is going to be against me, I may as well go with the enemy. The enemy is already against you. Esther faces death either way. The difference is whether she would be willing to die herself in order to save her people or whether she would try and save herself and deny her people, but also in doing so, deny her God. This brings us to the moment of truth and to likely the most famous passage of this book and one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Esther 4.14, in which Mordecai advises his young cousin, essentially like a niece, Esther, who is really like a daughter to him because he raised her as an orphan and has guided her even to her present situation. It's because Mordecai served in the court of the king that Esther was able to rise to this level at all. And again, by the way, similarities with other stories, not only with, for instance, Daniel, who served in the uh, court of the Babylonian Empire, but also the story of Joseph that we will look at next week, who rose to a place of privilege in the court of Pharaoh. Here is Esther in this privileged place, and Mordecai has been the instrument that allowed for that, and he says to her, daughter, that's not in there, I'm adding it, I'm implying it. He says to her, in other words, with love, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance, listen to the faith of this statement. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Read between the lines. How does he know? Because he knows God. Who is it that will be their deliverer? God. And so what he's saying is, God has placed you for such a time as this, in such a place as this, with such a role as this. But if you refuse to act, God will still do what God will do, but it will be the end for you and your father's house. I mentioned people in a workplace that might be at odds with you. Is all you can think about getting out of that place? Friend, maybe it is for such a time as this that God has put you there. Who else will speak to those people? If they live lives in which no one ever talks about God, will you remain silent about him too? I'm not calling you to be obnoxious, pushy, or disrespectful. 
Let God show up between the lines of your life. In the midst of the words of your mouth, sandwiched into the moment of truth that you face in the middle of a meeting or when a a supervisor calls you to compromise your character or when there is something going on that you know displeases God and everyone else bows down to it and you simply, quietly, confidently, graciously keep standing on the word for such a time as this. And it's not just in the workplace. It can be in the classroom. It can be in the marketplace. It can be in your home. It may be in your marriage. Are you with a spouse who does not know the Lord and you do or has not the love for the Lord that you do? Don't disparage them. Don't divide yourself from them. The apostle Paul said, if you are in that place, then be a witness to them through your love through your humility, through your graciousness, through your prayer. Esther does recognize the wisdom and the reality of Mordecai's charge. I mentioned that the people in this story of Esther don't necessarily come across as moral heroes. You might be thinking, Esther sounds pretty good to me. Well, listen, I'm not critiquing Esther or Mordecai. I think they look terrific. I'm impressed by their courage. I'm in awe of their faith. But the book itself is aware of something that you and I might not be as aware of because we're not in as close of touch with the Jewish rituals and commands of God's word of the Old Testament that would have been applicable in their lives. In other words, the kinds of things that they do when they are engaging in these feasts, they're not eating kosher foods. When she marries the king, she is not married to a man of the faith. And the scripture says, don't marry yourself outside of the faith. So in other words, by the standards of God's word in the Old Testament, Mordecai and Esther are living in a kind of compromised reality. Now, the book doesn't seem to castigate or judge them for that. In fact, the book elevates them in heroic ways. But it's also aware that they're not perfect. And the point of the story seems to be for people who know the word of God and love the Lord, but are living in a world in which it is so compromised away from the things of God that people can hardly live that way anymore. Now, you and I have the blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the model of the graciousness of Jesus that should give us every assurance that there is nothing of the things of the Lord that cannot be fulfilled in your life, no matter where you live. But that's really the point of Esther. It is a kind of messianic message that says, if you have your heart devoted to God, then even if the world around you is compromised in ways that affect your life, you can still be used by God for his purpose. That doesn't mean you and I should compromise morally. It means that our purity and righteousness comes from him and not from ourselves. Now, Esther recognizes something else, which is, if I'm going to take this step and take this risk, I want people to be praying for me. There's a great principle. Amen? Take that principle and put it into your life. If God is calling you to do something difficult, and it's an extreme challenge, don't enter into it without prayer, and don't hesitate to enlist the prayers of others. Ask people to be praying for you and with you. And in fact, not only does Esther enlist her ladies-in-waiting... She also asks Mordecai to invite all of the Jewish people in the capital of Susa to enter into a total fast. And look at the time, three days and three nights. 
For those of you who have been with me in PSOM and we studied Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish, the great sea creature, it was three days and three nights. Something that Jesus pointed out when he said, just like Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth, in the grave for three days and three nights. There is a parallel to the fast of Esther. I'm facing death, but I'm believing that on the far side of it, my life is in the hands of the Lord. Even though it's against the law, Esther determines, I'm going to go right to the throne of the king. I'm going to come boldly before the throne. And if I perish, then I perish. Again, read between the lines. The reason that she is willing to die is because she knows that in the Lord she will live. And in fact, she has the favor of the king. And again, behind the scenes, that can only be described as the favor of God that is shaping the heart of the king. And so Esther determines to have some feasts of her own. Now we're coming onto the backside of the story. The moment of truth is moving us into different kind of celebration. Whereas the king in his dissipation, in his debauchery, was given over to drinking and lewdness and roughness, now Esther, who is not divided from her husband, but is inviting a kind of unity into the household, says, I would like to have a feast for you and for Haman. David, writing the most notable psalm, arguably, of all the scriptures, wrote in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Do you know what that means? Christos, Mashiach, you anoint me. The oil is a symbol of the spirit. Jesus sat at the table of communion in the presence of his enemy, Judas, who would betray him. But he was anointed in the spirit of God. And when he lifted the cup, it's the cup that overflows. It's the cup of the new covenant in his blood. His blood flows to save you and I. Because his blood flows, our life grows. Esther has a series of feasts that call us to be aware that even in the presence of our enemies, God will deliver us and God will favor us if we trust in the Lord. This is also an opportunity for God through Esther to turn the tables. And it's pride that goes before a fall for Haman. He's so confident that the fact that the queen and the king are inviting him to sit down and have dinner together multiple times, and it's just the three of them basically, that he now believes this is it. He did not realize that Esther is Jewish and that his plan to have the Jewish people killed is actually a threat to the queen. He does not realize the relationship with Mordecai. But what he thinks is, nothing can stop me now from going forward in destroying my enemies. Now look, Esther is inviting her enemy to the table, but her enemy is trying to bring her and her people to the gallows. And in fact, that is what Mordecai has built in a very public way. High gallows upon which, excuse me, uh, Haman has that belt, upon which Mordecai is going to be hung. So on the day when all the Jewish people throughout the empire are going to be executed, and that is going to be done by, by mobs, by rabble throughout the, the kingdom who will have just free reign to take advantage 
a kind of horrific Kristallnacht precursor throughout the Persian Empire. That is the plan and the idea. And on that day also, Haman is thinking, and I'll hang Mordecai high and show everybody that I'm higher than him and this is what happens to my enemies. His vengeance is a bloodthirst. But his plan has an intriguing sign, the sign of the gallows. We don't know precisely whether the plan was that in hanging Mordecai on the gallows, he would actually be hung by the neck from a noose or whether more grisly but actually occurred throughout the ancient world, he would be impaled upon a kind of spike or pike or whether there's a different kind of death being described here. The word for gallows in Hebrew, eitz, is actually tree. And it is a word that is described of the execution tree. You'll remember that the book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. It is a way of saying, if you're a criminal and you're put to death because of the horribleness of your crime, you're under a curse. In other words, it's a crucifixion tree. Haman's plan is to crucify Mordecai. And if you will read between the lines, there's a man to be seen in that tree. So the plan is in place, and then the night falls. And overnight, for some reason, the king can't sleep. Again, look behind the curtains. God's hand is at work there. Who was it that gave Pharaoh dreams that so disturbed him that none of the wise men in his court could answer them, but only a man in the prison named Joseph? It was God. God who gave the dream, God who gave the interpretation. Who was it that withheld sleep from King Xerxes on this night? It was none other than God. And who was it that planted in his mind, perhaps, that one way to go to sleep would be read the annals of the king? Maybe they weren't very interesting, (laughs) Maybe he was thinking, that'll put me off to sleep. Just read the record book to me. And yet, when that book is being read and the scroll is unfurled, by the way, the scroll, Megillah, is the Jewish name that is used for the book of Esther, the Megillah, the scroll of the story. It unwinds that night before the king. The king, who is so self-centered, so narcissistic, that he has utterly forgotten this episode, but the record reminds him because it was written in the record of the king. And the book reflects that Mordecai is one who had saved the life and the throne and the rule of the king. And the king is reminded of that old plot and of Mordecai's faithfulness. It just so happens that the king distressed that Mordecai apparently received no specific reward for that, begins to wonder, how can I properly reward such an extraordinarily heroic action? And here comes Haman. And when the king asks him, how should I honor a man that I really want to honor and I haven't honored enough, the narcissism and self-centeredness of Haman makes him think he must be talking about me. Who else could he mean? And so he thinks of all the things he would like. Make a great big parade. Elevate him to the highest position. Make him the absolute prime minister, second only to the king in the kingdom. Again, an echo of Joseph's position under Pharaoh. And then Haman sees the tables turn, the ground twist under his feet. 
when the king makes it clear that he is not talking about Haman, but Mordecai, and that all the honors that Haman thought were going to go to himself are actually going to go to his worst enemy, but that's not the end of it. Then at the feast that, that, that Esther has prepared, this final feast, she reveals that she's not a friend of Haman, but she has brought him here to reveal his plot. In effect, she is revealing the plot of Haman in a way that is similar to how Mordecai revealed the plot against the king before. She stretches out her finger, j'accuse. It's you, Haman. You're an enemy of me. You're trying to kill me and my beloved relative, my, my, my adoptive father, and all my people. And the king, who by this point is devoted to Hadassah, to Esther, determines that it is a perfect plan to hoist Haman on his own petard. That's where the saying comes from. In other words, the enemy who prepared a cross of crucifixion is actually the one who is humiliated upon it. Now, Haman goes to the gallows in Esther 7. You can read about it. Look, says one of the eunuchs to the king, Mordecai was supposed to be hung on this gallows that Haman had uh, built. And the king said, that's perfect. Hang Haman on it instead. He and his entire household now face the execution. Now, you might say, this seems like a very unchristlike thing. But the story, remember, is not just about these people in ancient time, but about the enemy of your soul today. And what the Lord is saying to you and I in the story of Esther is, the devil who desires to destroy you is, in fact, the one who is being destroyed. The devil is not the king of hell. He is its prisoner. Hell was made for him. And you know who made it? He did. He is the designer of his own death. And so is anyone that follows him. So in fact, the story is not about cruelty to people, but about the graciousness of God and the righteousness of God to bring to an end the enemies of God. But in Christ, you and I see that God himself goes to the gallows for us. That even though the enemy designed it for us, Christ said, I will go. Like Esther going into the court of the king, Christ said, I will go before God the Father. I will hang as one cursed on the cross in order to save my people because I was born for such a time as this. For this very purpose, I have come. He hangs there so that you and I do not have to. He takes our place. Not only that, but after the demise of Haman, the king also reverses Haman's plan. And so instead of the Jewish people being subject to looting and death, they are allowed on that day to fight their enemies. Apparently the king is not allowed by his own laws to change an edict. So since Haman had gotten him to make the edict, the day has to be given over to what it has been designed for. The day of evil has to come because the king's word cannot be turned around. But the king adds a second edict. On that day, anyone who fights against the Jewish people, the Jewish people will be allowed to fight against them and they'll be resourced by the king. 
In other words, it becomes a day of celebration because far from being disfavored, the people of God end up being the victors of the day and all of their enemies are put down. Now, it is important to recognize this is not a charge for you and I to go out and do battle against people. We don't fight against flesh and blood. What it is is a promise that the spiritual principalities and powers that oppose you and I are not going to stop in their fight against us, but you have the power of the king on your side. You have Christ to go before you. So, Purim, this celebration of the reversal of fortune where God's people who seem to be disfavored ultimately come out ahead has a purpose, and that is to teach you and I about patience. It reminds us that God has a purpose in our problems. You know, all of these things bubble up and you think, why doesn't God stop it earlier? Because there's a victory that God wants to achieve and it's a greater victory than it could be unless there is a problem. The greater your problem, the greater God's victory. You know, yesterday, Pastor Maureen made a great statement. She said, every single miracle, and there's so many different kinds of miracles in the Bible, but all of them have something in common, one thing. They all begin with a problem. Do you want miracles in your life? You got to have problems. But once again, it's one of those funny things. Guess what? Problems come anyway, right? Problems are no problem. Hey, I got problems. Our ceiling started leaking today. Eh, Maybe it's a minor problem, but it's a problem. Who doesn't have problems? And problems can compound and multiply, but so can miracles. Now, don't create your own problems. God is the problem solver, but sometimes God has a purpose in our problems, and sometimes God calls us to be patient in our waiting, but he will deliver his people in his timing. And even if we perish while we are pursuing God's purpose, God's presence will be with us. He will always preserve us in his kingdom. The patience of Esther is the trust that even in a world where God is not named, God is still present. The patience and the faith of Esther and Mordecai is No matter who is against us, if God is for us, then no weapon formed against us can prosper. And on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of the enemy and demonstrated once and for all that there is nothing that God cannot do and that even death no longer has its sting because in Christ, all the answers of God to his people are yes and amen and life everlasting is our hope. Lord, we pray that you would give us the kind of courageous, confident faith that we see in Esther and Mordecai. And even more than that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize that you're the hero of this story and of our story, and that you have a plan and a purpose even in the midst of our problems. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see things from your perspective, and that if it requires prayer and prayer partners and fasting, that we would enter into that. And that if there is risk, Lord, that we would even willingly enter into the risk if you have called us to that place for such a time as this. Help us to see our lives as purposeful and powerful in you. Help us to see our problems as opportunities for miracles. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you and not the ways of the world, to celebrate in trust 
what you have done for us and who you are for us and not to be won over to the ways of the world or shaped according to the wickedness of this world. Liberate us from our flesh, Lord. Deliver us from evil and let your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives, in our world today. In Jesus' name, amen.